This morning, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ruth, chapter 1, I've been wanting to speak on the book of Ruth for quite some time, and last time we were together, we finished the book of Colossians, so I thought, what better time than now to begin a new series, and to begin a series on the book of Ruth. And I have discovered some really interesting things as I studied it, some very interesting perspectives on it, and so um, over the next few times that I am with you, Lord willing, we will go through this book, and I trust that you will find it um, a blessing as I have preparing this message. And today my message is titled, Reflections on Redemption in the Book of Ruth, Man Plans, God Directs. So this whole book, I believe, points to redemption. And it points us to the truths about redemption in the New Testament. And I even heard one speaker call it the gospel according to Ruth, because there's a lot of good parallels here. Um, But as we dig in, um, my hope is that we will be blessed, and as always, that we come away with a greater appreciation of who our God is and who we are to Him. For that is that is why we meet. That is why we have hope. That is why um, we don't treat Sunday like an extra Saturday where we can just sleep in and be lazy. And uh, as the heathen uh, says in the scriptures, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. We as Christians have a far greater hope and purpose than that. And so it's my hope as we open this book that we will see that to be true. Before we do that, let's open in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for allowing us to be here. Lord, I thank you for answering my prayer earlier this week when I just posted on Facebook that you would let your will be done as far as my being able to make it here to preach your word. I thank you for safety on the roads. Thank you for each and every person in this room. I thank you so much for Pastor Todd and his investment in my life and in my ministry and for everyone else here at True Life that has become like family to me. I just thank you for them from the bottom of my heart. And I ask that you bless our time together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, my first point, or the first section... Um, And all these start with F, so if you like um, alliteration or uh, tricks to remember things, hopefully this will help you remember the outline. And if you're taking notes, the first point is famine and failure. Famine and failure. Let's read from the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. Now it came to pass, in the days when the judges ruled, that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man 
of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. And they took wives of the women of Moab, the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth, and they dwelled there about ten years. And Malan and Kilian died, also both of them, and the woman was left of, of her two sons and her husband. So we have in the beginning of this uh, chapter a very bleak picture. First of all, we know that this was the days when the judges rule. If you flip back one page to Judges chapter 24, or Judges chapter 21, and the, the final verse, what does it say? In, the day, in those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in their own eyes. That is such a significant verse right there. Because I feel like when our founding fathers came over to this country and they wanted to found our country, they said these words. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, they weren't perfect men. Some of them were not believers, but a large majority of them were. And they knew that in order to found a nation, you had to found it on a moral standard. And what better moral standard than the unchanging rock of the word of God? And so when they founded the government, they founded it with this in mind, that we would follow God, that we would be able to have freedom because we'd be able to do what we want to do within the context of God's word. Now, of course, we didn't always do things right. There are some pretty black marks on American history as far as the way that we treated the Native Americans and the way that we treated people of color in our country. And that is a very sad reality that we had to come to grips with and deal with each of these things one by one. But the reality is they knew they needed a moral standard to live by. And the same thing is true of the children of Israel. They were chosen by God. Abraham first. Abraham was known as a friend of God. Chosen by God. And he says, God says to Abraham, Your descendants will be as the sand of the seashore. And then what does he do? He makes Sarah barren. And then Sarah finally gives birth to a son, Isaac, when she's 90 and Abraham's 99. And then Isaac's 40. He marries Rebekah. And what happens? God makes Rebekah barren. And yet God fulfills his promise because Jacob and Esau eventually are born of Rebekah and out of Jacob comes the nation of Israel. Of whose descendants are as the sand 
of the seashore, and by this time they've become a great nation. They've gone to Egypt to be saved. They've been delivered from Egypt. They've conquered many godless lands. God says, wherever you put your foot, that's where I'm going to give you a possession. And he says, do not intermingle with people of other faiths because you are quickly drawn away from me. And I'm a jealous God. And so, but the, where we find our passage today is the fact of the matter is that Elimelech kind of forgot that a little bit. And he decides, hey, there's famine in Bethlehem, which, by the way, is called what? The house of bread. So there is a there is a reason why Bethlehem had that name. It was a place where you would think there would be plenty. And that was the expectation that there would be plenty in Bethlehem. That's why it was called the house of bread. So now there's a famine. So a certain man goes to Moab he and his wife and his two sons. Now, Moab was one of these wicked nations that they weren't supposed to have anything to do with. And you'll find that what they get when they come to Moab and spend 10 years there is nothing but failure. See, they left for success. They left because there was no bread in Bethlehem, but what they found was that didn't keep them alive. Because soon, Elimelech died. And then without their father's wisdom, which was compromised at this point anyway, then they decided to take wives from the women of Moab. Now, to the young people in the audience, and I try to remind myself of this every day, and especially every time I get discouraged about my own situation, the person that you marry is the most important decision outside of your decision to follow Christ. The one that you will marry, the one that you will spend the rest of your life with, is one of the most important decisions you will ever make. And one of the reasons that we have such a problem in marriages today is because we take it too lightly. We say, well, if it doesn't work out, I can get a divorce. If it doesn't work out, I can just end it and move on. And sadly, we even have times when people who are committed, supposed to be committed followers of Christ take sides in a situation, and instead of encouraging a couple to work it out, instead of pushing them back together, they pull them apart. And I've seen personal examples of this in my own life. And it grieves me to the core, because Jesus said this, He said, what, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. He meant that when He said it. And so that's why this is so important. But they take these wives and then they die. So now you've got Naomi and you've got Orpah and Ruth 
and they're all widows. And in the economy of the time, there was nobody lower on the poverty totem pole than a widowed woman. Because a woman, especially in that culture, relied heavily on her husband for her sustenance and for her care. I believe that should still be the case. I'm kind of old-fashioned that way. But the point is, this is the situation in which they find themselves. And I have to wonder, first of all, right off the bat, if they had never left Bethlehem, would God have taken care of them? David said, I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor God's people begging bread. It doesn't usually work out very well when we go the opposite way of where God wants us. Think about Jonah. God said, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to deliver a message of judgment to the Ninevites so that they can repent and turn to me. And Jonah says, I don't want to go to Nineveh. So he gets on a boat and he goes the opposite way to Tarshish. And what does God do? He sends a storm. And all these heathen people are crying out to their gods to no avail. And Jonah says, I know why there's a storm. Throw me overboard and then everything will be fine. And they appealed to Jonah and they said, we can't do this to you. And he said, no, do it and, and my God will spare you. And so Jonah gets thrown overboard. He spends three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, which, instant, which interestingly enough is what Jesus promised when he went to the grave, he said, I'll be in the grave three days and three nights as Jonah was in the belly of the whale. And at the end of that time, Jonah goes to Nineveh and they repent. And Jonah rejoices because they repented. No, he didn't. He said, God, I knew they were going to repent. And God said, who are you to tell me not to redeem Nineveh? There are so many people there that don't know their right hand from their left. And so if I choose to show them mercy, then I choose to show them mercy. But we see in this situation that God has a way of taking our foolish mistakes and turning them to His blessing. Remember... I said the title of today's message was, in part, Man Plans, God Directs. There's a proverb that says, man, plan, man plans his way, but God directs his steps. My friends, if you are truly earnestly seeking God, he will show you the way to go. And sometimes there's, there's two really good options, and you're worried about taking the wrong steps, so you don't take any step. And let me tell you, God is more than capable of closing doors that he doesn't want you to go through and opening doors that no man can shut. He's done that in my life so many times. I wonder if we could, in thinking about this thing about famine being a punishment, because God really uh, did use that. 
Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3. If someone gets there, if they could read it for me, I would appreciate it. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. And I, I believe there's some further verses in that, in that passage around there talking about how, how famine will be one of the results. Um, but the fact of the matter is, again, we, we see them intermarrying with this heathen race, and we see God's clear and distinct prohibition of such things. Sometimes when God uh, tells us not to do something, we, we automatically want to do that thing. And one of the best ways I ever heard it put it one of the best ways I heard it, heard it put was when God says no. If we were allow if we were to allow that sentence to continue in our minds, it would say, "No, I don't want you to hurt yourself." And if we would remember that, we would have a much greater perspective on the nose of God. And so. This situation looks pretty hopeless right now, right? I haven't read about any hope in these verses. And one interesting thing you'll see as we go through Ruth, you never hear God speak in this book. Much like Esther, he's present, but you don't hear him speak. My friends, if you feel like God has been silent in your life, know that he is always at work. And know that if you're feeling Far from him, it's not him that moved. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So perhaps it's us. Perhaps it's you running from him. May I encourage you to do an about face and turn back toward the only one who has the answers. Bishop Gobat of Jerusalem, after a long missionary journey, at one time was greatly discouraged. He felt that God had forsaken him. Finding a cave, he went into it, spending a long time in prayer, telling God how forsaken he was. It was a very dark cave. After being in the dark for a while, his eyes became accustomed to it. He was startled by seeing a wild animal, a hyena and her cubs near him. It is said that there is no animal more ferocious than a hyena with cubs, but God protected him. The hyena never offered to touch him. God's hand was keeping him at the very hour when he thought he was most when he thought he was forsaken. He passed out unharmed. Oh that God would open our eyes so that we might realize the fact that, that at times when we get the idea that we are forsaken of him, he is keeping us from unseen dangers. This is such an important reminder to us. Sometimes when life seems the most hopeless, God is about ready to do the biggest thing. Now I want to caution you, even as I say that, that 
That can pretend to some circles as some sort of prosperity gospel. But if it gets desperate, eventually it's going to turn out exactly the way you want it to. Part of our problem as believers is we're looking for specific things. And God does things his own way. And sometimes we don't see the answers to prayer because, well, they're not the answers I wanted. So it doesn't, it doesn't count. But I can guarantee you that God is good. God is on the throne. God is at work. In July of 2019, I was told that I, had, that I made too much money to get disability from the state anymore. And now I, I've, try, I've had a goal of getting off disability for my whole life since I turned 18. But I was pretty devastated at first because I was thinking, hey, I, um, that's like $800 of my income. That's like a third of my income that's going to go by the wayside. Maybe I should quit my job and comply with everything they say so I can get back on. And I just felt God saying, trust me. Let me take care of you. And you know what? God has provided that money every single month. From various sources. Because the thing is, I need to keep going forward in the strength of the Lord. I need to prove to those around me that I serve a God who cares about those things. And that I do not need to be withholden to a government that has no regard for biblical principles. Why, why would I want that? The reality is, I don't. Because I want to be free. To honor God. And to do the things that most please Him. And, and sure there's obstacles. Sure, I wish my income was a little higher. But God always provides. And it's in my experience, by the mercy and grace of God, that when I complain the loudest is just when He's about to give me one of the, some of the biggest blessings. Because He doesn't hold my humanity against me. He knows my frame. He remembers that I'm dust. So let's look and see our second point. We've seen famine and failure. So now let's look at future hopes. Ruth 1, 6-13. Then she arose, this is Naomi, with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. Wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return unto the land of Judah. And Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, Go return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you might find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voice and wept. And they said unto her, Surely we will return with thee unto thy people. And Naomi said, Turn again, my daughters, why will you go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb, that they may be your husbands? Turn again, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have an husband. If I should say I have hope, 
if I should have an husband also tonight and should also bear sons, would you tarry for them until they are grown? Would you stay for them from having husbands? Nay, my daughters, for agree with me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. So, basically, Naomi said, said, for, for, the, for your future hope, you need to go back to your home and to your kindred. Now, this is another one of those situations where we don't see Naomi praying about it. We don't see her seeking counsel. She just says, this is, this is the best way for you to go. Now, I had the privilege of preaching a Christmas message a few weeks ago, and I preached about um, Joseph. And one of the things about Joseph, the, the husband of Mary, is that he was very discerning. He didn't make hasty decisions. When he found out that Mary was pregnant, he could have just said, Be gone from my life, Mary. He could have brought her out to the city gates and said, I have proof she's with child. It's not mine. Stone her to death. And yet, the Bible says, well, he pondered these things. An angel of the Lord came to him and said, Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived of her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. But the important thing I want to mention to you here is it happened while Joseph pondered these things. When we're facing a decision, sometimes we feel like we want to make a decision like yesterday and God's saying, ponder. The psalmist says, wait on the Lord. And then he says it again, wait, I say, on the Lord. These are important things for us to be aware of. And so, if we could look at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. I want to encourage you to ponder what the Lord has done, but I also want you to think about the role of, well, let's read Ephesians 2, 6, 2 and 3. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise, so that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. I think this is an important lesson here. Because even though they were foreign women, they were Moabites, they didn't know the God of Israel, or they didn't have as keen a knowledge of the God of Israel as Naomi, they were showing her honor. They said, we're going to go with you. And then, of course, when Naomi makes her second appeal, Orpah decides to kiss her and go away. But I think it's important for us to realize that 
Honoring our parents has a promise to it. Long life and blessings. And we will see in our next section how Ruth is honored for it. Before we do, I just want to read this quote. It says, There are no hopeless situations. There are only people who have grown hopeless about them. And that was by Claire Booth Luce. And I just think that's a really good situation. They're really good... Um, Statement, there are no hopeless situations. There are only people who have grown hopeless about them. Because God was directing in Naomi's life even through this time. And in the lives of her daughters. And I think it's significant that she says, I'm praying for a blessing from the Lord that you... That he would deal kindly with you as you have dealt kindly with the dead and with me. A lot of times there's mother-in-law jokes. It's a big trope of our culture. People complaining about their mother-in-law. But in this case, the mother-in-law of these women was a blessing to them. And And it was very clear that they were a blessing to her because she says... I want the Lord to deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me and with those who have died. What a legacy. That's my prayer for families. That they would have that opinion of one another. Families are the foundational cornerstone of our society and one of the problems that we have today is that they're falling apart. They're crumbling. And as a result, our jails are full. Our churches are emptying at at an alarming rate. And if they're not empty, a lot of times it's because they're not preaching sound doctrine. If going to church on Sunday morning does not change the way you look at life, and does not point you to the only one who can change your life, Jesus Christ, then going to church is worthless. See, we don't go to church to strike uh, a check on our checklist. We go to church because we know that we don't have it all together, but we know the one who can put it all together. We know people who know him, and that's who we're supposed to be around. That's why we're here today. So, we've talked about failure, famine and failure. We've talked about future hopes. Now let's talk about firm resolve. Ruth 1, 14-17. Now this passage of scripture has a very special place in my heart because my mom and dad used it in their wedding. And if the Lord is willing, I would like to at least have it read at my wedding as well. It's a great passage of unity and love and commitment. Ruth 1.14 says, And they lifted up their voice and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth 
clave unto her. There was obviously a closeness with Ruth that wasn't the same with Orpah. Because Ruth, Naomi says, leave Ruth clings on tighter. And so we see, and then it says, and she said, Behold, thy sister-in-law has gone back unto her people, and unto her gods return thou after thy sister-in-law. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee, for whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God, my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part of thee in me. Imagine the level of commitment that Ruth is showing here. She's lived in Moab all her life. She knows nothing about Israel. She knows nothing about the future. Her mother-in-law basically already said, I have no hope for you. I, I can't give you any sons of mine that you can marry. I don't have any money. The Lord has dealt harsh with me. I don't have anything. And yet she's saying, I'm not going to leave you. Naomi, what a wonderful blessing that is. And I, as, I, as I think about that, I, I think about an interesting parallel. You know, Jesus, he fed the 5,000 and they were all excited about him supposedly and about his ministry and then it got to be another meal time and they were, and they were hungry again. And Jesus calls him out and he says, you're following me because I gave you physical food. But this is not about physical food. It's about following me even unto death if it's necessary. And what happens? Most of them forsook him and fled. They left. And Jesus turned to Simon Peter and to the twelve and he said, Will you go away also? And what did Peter say? He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone, you alone have the words of eternal life. And I think that even in Naomi's despair, there was something about her that still had hope. Remember what Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Naomi's not saying that God is unjust by using his hand against her. I, I used to think that she was like totally this mega bitter person, but I, I heard an interesting perspective as I was studying for this that she, in fact, wasn't quite as bitter as we sometimes paint her to be because if she was, she would have gone further away from God instead of going back to God in Bethlehem. I think she recognized the chastening of the Lord. 
But as we will find, she was fuller than she thought. Um, this quote from A Better Way says, There is a big difference between a mere desire to do a thing and a burning passion to do it. A determination to accomplish it at any cost. A mere desire is like warm water in a locomotive. It will never produce steam. It takes fire and force and enthusiasm to generate the things that propel the successful character. You see this in Orpah and Ruth. Orpah had the desire to go with her mother-in-law. She had the warm water in the locomotive. But Ruth, she had the fire and the force and the enthusiasm to carry through and to go with Naomi. What a blessing that Ruth loved Naomi so much. She says, wherever you go, whatever God has planned for us, I'm going to be with you. My friends, if you have a spouse that has committed that to you, realize how blessed you are today. People are throwing away the gift of marriage at an alarming rate today. And I beg and implore you to remember what a gift it is. Remember what it was like on that day when you stood in that church and you committed to be with each other for life. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. In sickness and in health. Why did God give it to give that to us? Because He wanted us to find rest. You notice in this passage it says she prayed that they would find rest in the house of a husband. I really believe that marriage should be a place of rest, and it's sad to me that even sometimes in our Christian circles when we tease people about getting married. We, t- we talk about it in the context of them losing their freedom or being chained to a ball and chain. That is not the way that we as a church should characterize it. It's horrible that we do that. We need to think of it as a place when as we honor God we find rest. What an amazing blessing it would be if we had that as a vision for marriage. The fourth point is faulty vision. Ruth 1, 18 to 22, finishing up the chapter, says this. When she saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her, then she left speaking unto her. So the two went until they came to Bethlehem, and it came to pass that when they came to Bethlehem, that all the city was moved about them, And they said, Is this Naomi? And she said unto them, Call me not Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty hath dealt bitterly with me. 
I went out full and the Lord hath brought me back empty. Why then call ye me call why then call ye me Naomi? Seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, I'm sure even as we recognize the chastening of the Lord and the blessing of the Lord, we still can struggle with what it means. And I think that's why Naomi is saying, call me Mara. Because the Lord dealt bitterly with me. She never says I didn't deserve it. She just says, this is the facts. The Lord dealt bitterly with me. I was full. I had my two sons and my husband when I left. They're not here with me at all. Now so I'm empty. But I wonder what Ruth was thinking as she's standing by Naomi and Naomi says this because Ruth had just promised her life to Naomi. And apparently Naomi still felt empty. You know, there's a classic movie that I watch every Thanksgiving. It's a Wonderful Life. And in the final scene, Harry Bailey, George's younger brother, George is the main character, comes back to Bedford Falls in a snowstorm. And he gives a toast to George and he says these words to my big brother George, the richest man in town. And when I was a little kid, I used to think, well, how much money did he actually get that day anyway? Because they never set a final count, and I kept seeing people drop money, and I said, he definitely was richer than when he went in that room. So that was my little kid understanding. But as I got older, I realized that what Harry was saying was that all these people, all these friends, were what made George a rich man. The fact that George was rich toward others and kind toward others, that's what made him a rich man. Remember what God said to the rich farmer who was building bigger barns and bigger barns. He said, and then he said, soul, rest. For you have made your life good. And God said to him, today your soul will be required of you. Why? Because God said, this is what will happen when your soul is not rich toward God. You see, in that story, George never had two pennies of his own to rub together. He gave up his honeymoon money to, to, pay, to help care for the people of the city. He gave up his college money to his brother. He never really had much. He always lamented that he couldn't do more for his wife. But the reality was that he was rich in the things that mattered. Because the rich guy, Mr. Potter, 
He's one of the most miserable people in the whole town. Because all he cared about is money and all he had for any sort of family was his goon that pushed him around. He didn't have anybody that cared for him. So even as Naomi is saying this about being empty, Ruth is standing right next to her. So she's actually pretty rich when you think about it. Another thing I want to point out is that it says they came into Bethlehem when? At the beginning of the barley harvest. If you're going to come back to a land that had nothing when you left, harvest time is a pretty good time to come in. We're going to continue to see as we, Lord willing, continue to study this book, how God provides for them to the point that by the time we get to chapter 4, Naomi will say something along the lines that Ruth is more valuable to her than ten sons. What a testimony. What a testimony. And all because Ruth said... No matter what happens, I'm going to follow after you. Probably because even in the midst of tragedy, Christians have hope. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that we sorrow not as those who have no hope. That one of the reasons that we sorrow, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, is so that we may comfort others in their sorrow. I, don't, I can't imagine how people exist or understand life from any other perspective. You can definitely tell a difference between a funeral where you know the person has gone to be with the Lord and a funeral where you know they had nothing to do with them. My prayer is that you would trust Him. Your circumstances might not change. When I trusted Jesus at five years old, I woke up the next day and I still needed to be lifted out of bed. And I woke up the next day and I still needed to be lifted out of bed. And I woke up the next day and I still needed to be left out of bed. And 35 years later, this morning, I still needed to be lifted out of bed. But you know what? I still have hope. Because God has never forsaken. And from the time that I was 13 years old, when I fully rededicated myself to him and stopped arguing with him, because see, for the first nine years of my salvation, I knew where my permanent destination was, but I hated my temporary destination. And I said, God, why would you make me this way if you wanted me to serve you? And he was patient with me and he held me. And he would not give up on, give up on me. And finally, when I was 14 years old, a year after losing my baby brother, he said to me simply, Andrew, give me room to work. Let me use you. I'll take care of the details. 
You just trust me. And then things began to happen. It'll be 20 years in October since I first went into the county jail. Been doing that once a month. I've had opportunities in radio. I have opportunity to work at a Christian organization where I get to spend the days working with kids and also some of my close friends among my coworkers there. And I'm just so blessed at the way that God worked. Because as a homeschooled student, I never thought that I would ever set foot in a high school. But God has a sense of humor. And he decided that I should. So that's where I'm at. So, let's look really quickly at another passage, Lamentations 3, verses 21 to 26. Lamentations 3, verses 21 to 26. Again, we look at life through finite eyes. We don't see, you know, I've heard it likened to like a parade, you know. He looks at things from above. We look at things from being in the midst. We know He knows the things that he delivers us from. I think of that story about Elijah and his servant. Where his servant said, the enemy is so thick out there. We're going to be in so much trouble. What do we do? And then Elijah prayed that God would open his servant's eyes. And he opened his eyes and he looked back on the hills. And he saw the hosts of heaven standing between them and the enemy. And I believe those hosts are still in action today. We just don't see them. Matter of fact, what does Hebrews say? It says, Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for some have entertained angels thereby. What an amazing thing it would be to entertain an angel. So, Lamentations 3, 21 to 26, if someone has that. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him. To the one who seeks him, it is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Again, as we talked about earlier, there's a great benefit in waiting on the Lord. Now, we don't like to wait. The disciples, when Jesus went up into heaven, what does it say they did? They stood gazing into heaven. I don't know if they thought he was going to come back five minutes later or, or what they thought the timetable was going to be, but they certainly were hoping he would come back soon. And the men that were there that day said, Why do you stand gazing into heaven? That same Jesus who went up before you today shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go. In other words, these shining messengers were saying, Go do the work that God has for you. And let him worry about the details. Jesus himself said right before he went up to heaven, he said, it is not 
for you to know the times or the seasons. Not even the sun knows. Now that is that is a mind-boggling thing because we know that God is all-knowing and Jesus is God, but he has chosen selective memory on this. And another thing he's chosen selective memory on is my sins. The God who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The God who never forgot a single promise to his people or to me also says, I will never remember your sins. What an amazing paradox that we find in Scripture. There may be times when you could wish for more striking signs of God's presence and power in the world. And in your own life. A bush that burns and is not consumed like that which told Moses that God was nigh. A fleece that is wet with dew on the rock that is dry like that which let Gideon know that God was speaking to him. The shadow going back on the face of the dial like that which was assured of Isaiah. Which uh, assured Isaiah that his life would be spared 15 years. Um, But when you stop to think of it, This longing is without reason. What more striking evidence could you have that there is a God and that God is in the world, that God has dealing with you than your conscience or than your soul? How could God have made himself more real to us than by conscience? And I do believe that quote has one mistake in it because I don't think it was Isaiah that was promised 15 more years, it was one of the kings and Isaiah was sent to Hezekiah. And Isaiah was actually sent to deliver that message. But the point is the same. That we all look for signs of God's presence. But what does the Bible say? The heavens declare the glory of God. And it says that nature itself bears witness so that all men are without excuse. Because a creation points to a creator. If we go into the car factory and we, we, or we, we see the car in its made form and we, what do we do? We, we ask, well, who, what dealership did you get it at? Or what manufacturer made this car? And then if we really want to get into the nuts and bolts and minutia, we can look up that manufacturer. And they can probably track down even the people that worked specifically on that car if you needed them to. And yet with something that is infinitely more complex than that, we have chosen as a culture to say, oh, it just happened. I don't know how anybody gets up every day with the knowledge that it just happened. Instead, I get up every day with the knowledge that I will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. With the knowledge that the devil may be powerful, and he is powerful, and sometimes we underestimate his power, but guess what? When the devil tormented Job, he had to go before God to get permission to do so. So if the devil is going to torment me for any reason, he has to go through God to get permission to do it. 
And that's a great comfort to me. I hope that this message has given you a lot to think about. I know that studying it has given me a lot to think about. God is so good. And we have a lot to be thankful for. And sometimes God empties us so that he can fill us again. And all of him says, channels only. Blessed Master, but with all thy wondrous power flowing through us, thou canst use us any day and any hour. Empty that thou shouldest fill me a clean vessel in thine hand. Are you full of yourself, or are you full of him? Those are the only two choices. And we struggle between the two even as believers, because Paul said it himself, there's a, there's a war going on between our members. But if we realize that we can live in the resurrection power, that the victory has already been won, then we can go forth knowing that God will do the things in us that we cannot do in ourselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the book of Ruth. Lord, I think again of of the words of the disciples. Lord, where would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. My prayer for the people here is that they would embrace the words of eternal life not just for the unbeliever but even we as believers need to be reminded of it even we as believers need to be empowered by it and we ask that you would do that in a way that only you can in Jesus name